0: I'll kick right. things off. Um, right. I'll just do a little introduction. Um, hey, everybody out there. My yeah. name is Chris. This is Cheatash. And today we have another very special guest on the podcast, uh, Mr. Ray Blehar. And I knew, I knew of Ray from an interview that he did f- from the Ed Opperman Report, which is another uh, great podcast. And Ray, would you please introduce yourself for the audience?
1: Well, Chris, thanks for having me on. Uh, Let's see. Ray Blehar. I retired from the federal government in 2017 after spending 32 years as an analyst. Uh, Most of the time as an analyst. A few years I was an assistant inspector general. So basically, analysis and investigations are what I do and what I did. My connection to Penn State was I grew up about 50 miles from there. I got my MBA from Penn State in 2008. Um, My undergraduate degree is from a little school in Pennsylvania called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And that degree was geography, which is how I kind of got into the defense and intelligence uh, work. So uh, that's my professional background in a nutshell. I nice. got involved with the scandal at Penn State, because like many people, I waited for a report from Louis Free to come out and find out what happened, and then as a person who writes this type of reports, and as a fellow investigator, I said, this is one of the worst reports I've ever read. Uh, the executive summary has a lot of information in it that's not supported in the body of the report, so... And the report was hastily done and really just a bad job. So, pretty much a bunch of us tore the report apart and then we just kept going from there. As things developed, we just stayed on top of it. So, that's kind of how we got to where I am right now.
0: And thank you for mentioning that, Ray. That's uh, the, the topics of the the interviews that I saw that you did with that Opperman were regarding um, Second Mile. Uh, Jerry Sandusky and Penn State and it's something that kind of hits close to home for me as well and I went to University of Michigan so being in Big Ten schools and you know we play Penn State um, every year in uh, a variety of sports Um, I was in school when this uh, the scandal happened Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you and this is it's funny because this is a question I interviewed a, a Civil War professor and I had mentioned to him that even today that there there are still there's still books being written about the Civil War. and I asked him like is there still stuff that needs to be said about the Civil War? And he said, yeah, absolutely yes. And I guess I wanted to start off and ask you kind of a similar question and um, and I know you mentioned that you have a book coming out on this topic and I wanted to kind of ask you what more, like needs to be said or needs to be heard about um, jerry sandusky's second mile and this whole scandal
1: a lot because what the media did was they followed the the lead of the prosecutors the attorney general's office and when they weren't doing that they were following the lead of lewis free so anything that didn't fit with their narrative of a Penn State cover-up just was whitewashed. So when you go back and you look at the investigation of Jerry C. And then subsequently the investigation of the Penn State Administrator's president, and those people, there's a lot of information that the public doesn't know because the media ignored it because it didn't fit with the narrative of the Penn State cover. For example, probably the best example, Louis Free allegedly found this secret file belonging to the Vice President of Finance, Gary Schultz, that Schultz had kept away. Well, fact of the matter was he didn't find it. Louis Free, when they went to court in a preliminary hearing, nobody from Louis Free's team testified to finding the file. So completely false, completely made up. Uh they, the investigator that took the stand could not even say when the file was discovered. Okay. He didn't know. And so eventually documents became available. Notes from Louis Free's investigative team were leaked to the public. And one of the investigators admitted that. They were handed the information from the attorney general, uh, who had it probably in January of 2011. And they alleged that this information was kept hidden until April of that year. So all thoughts. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Really quick, uh, Louis, Louis Free was the he was a former FBI director. Correct.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And he w- was he was
1: FBI director under Bill Clinton. Is that correct? I believe he was. He. Yeah, I believe he may, may have been in the Bush administration as well. But I uh, think Mueller took his place.
0: Okay. And how does how does um how does he get linked to write this report? Like, could a could anybody have? written this
1: report or was he somehow well, he was he was hired by the board of trustees as the uh as the, the special investigator oh okay and so he they actually had considered uh, a few other people but the governor of pennsylvania had recommended free and um he was uh he was picked uh, because of his alleged alleged reputation, which kind of went into tatters after Penn State, but that's another story.
0: Going back, um, kind of, kind of to like square one, square one with this guy Jerry Sandusky. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about, like, who who was Jerry Sandusky?
1: Yeah, so Jerry. Um, Jerry grew up in a little town called Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, kind of little city. Anyway, his father owned a uh, kind of like a recreation center for boys, and so they lived above the rec center, and so that's where Jerry Sandusky first learned his trade, you know, showering with boys at the rec center and uh, wrestling around them, and uh then he went on to, you know, said he never dated anyone. He never dated girls in high school, never dated girls in college, um, became a, a became a football coach, assistant football coach at Penn State. Actually he started at he started at Juniata College, which is a little college in Huntington, Pennsylvania. Then he got a job at Boston College, and then he was eventually hired at Penn State. And so, um, when he got to Penn state, I want to say that was around 75, maybe 74. Uh, it was about three years after he got there that he established the children's charity called the second mile. And then, uh, so between 77 and up until 2010, when they fired him from the second mile, that's what he ran he coached football and he did the second mile. So, um. Very, um, very what they call pillar of a community, uh, child molester. So trusted by everyone, goofy guy, wouldn't harm anyone, but you no, know, sinister.
0: And regarding his, his career in football was, he was also a player at Penn State as well?
1: Yes. He played at Penn State. I think he was a tight end, uh, you know not a significant career there um by any means mm-hmm. but yeah he played there
0: would you say because i and i don't remember i i don't remember jerry sandusky as a coach and i know he retired in was it like 1998 or 1999 something like that
1: he retired in 98 and then they rehired him for the 99 season as a consultant okay then they kind of fired him after the '99 season. So, but, um, he had built this reputation um, as a linebacker coach, and um, he was a very good position linebacker coach. He was not a great defensive coordinator, though people thought he was, because you know he had a couple of great games that the defense stood out and they beat Miami in the Fiesta Bowl. But most of the time, I mean, he had a lot of talent. He recruited great at Penn State. And uh, great athletes. So the defenses were always pretty good
0: when he was there. Yeah, I, um, I had heard the name uh, Linebacker U. Um, right. I remember that name growing up um, associated with Penn State. And, yeah, I remember lots of great players uh, coming out of Penn State, lots of great defensive players. Um, when when um, Jerry retired after 1998, 1999 that, that you had mentioned, um, at that time, did people know about what was going on with Jerry and, um, children and the second mile?
1: You mean like the, the sexual part? Yes. No, Of course not. That'd be, that'd be crazy. Um, because, uh, you know, it just looked normal um you know he'd have five kids with him all the time so maybe he's you know that group of five kids and he's molesting one of the five okay mm-hmm. and uh, so it was very normal to see him around kids and um so yeah that's uh that's one of the fallacies of uh any of these cases that you run into larry nasser and you know, the guy at michigan the coach the you know, like I said, once we started the that, everybody got in on it, Michigan State, Ohio State, you know. So you start finding out this happens everywhere, not just, you know, mm-hmm. not just Pennsylvania or, or Penn State. So, um, so, like I said, they're serial criminals. Serial criminals can only be serial criminals if they're good at hiding what they do, you know. If they weren't good at it, they would get arrested and they'd only harm one or two people. So Ted Bundy, John Gacy, all, the, mm-hmm. all those killers are really good at blending in, not standing out, fighting what they do.
0: So when I, I had remember, I, I remember um, when Mike McQuery came out with his uh, statements about what he had allegedly seen in the Penn State locker room that one day. Is that kind of like the thing that, Kind of sparked this whole this whole thing was that was that like where everything started from was from what Mike McQuarrie allegedly saw.
1: Well, the media firestorm um, was caused by the attorney general lying about what Mike McQuarrie said he saw. Okay, um, but no, in the investigation of Jerry, there were two. Okay, The first one was in 1998 and a, a mother complained because his, his her son was showered with Jerry. Okay. So um, when they talked to her, she said, well, the neighbor kid also showered with Jerry. So they interviewed Jerry and Jerry goes, well, I've done it with a bunch of other kids too. And the, uh, the Child Protective Services people said, well, if there was no sexual intent, it's not a crime, it's nothing wrong. So they they didn't do anything about Jerry. And the cops certainly, if child welfare saying there's nothing sexual, cops district attorney really can't press charges. Because who they're gonna call the a defense child protective services. They're gonna say, it's normal for this 50-year-old guy or 60-year-old guy to be showering with kids. Okay. So that, that that case wasn't going anywhere. And then uh, in 2008, another kid came forward. And uh, like I said, you know, he did this in Clinton County, Pennsylvania, where they weren't wise to Jerry. And so they basically said, yeah, well, you know, in this case, he didn't shower with him. He was actually in bed with him. And so um, they said, yeah. Jerry's a child molester. So, uh, you know, they said, we'll, we'll let the cops come in and investigate. But for now, Jerry can't go anywhere near this kid. And uh, so then, about that was like November the 20th or the 21st this, of 2008 that that happened. And then Jerry showed up with his attorney on January the 12th to be interviewed by Child Protective Services. And at that meeting, he admitted, yeah, I was in bed with this kid, rolled around, had him on top of me. I was on top of him. I blew raspberries on his stomach. But uh, he, they asked him if he put his hands below the waist. He said he couldn't remember. Um, and uh, so, you know, he pretty much admitted, you know, if you're accused of having sex with a minor, and then you admit, yeah, I was in bed with him, did nothing happen. Well, you know, that story doesn't. And it doesn't gonna hold up. It didn't hold up in court. So anyway. Wow. So that's how it started. And then basically they mucked around with the cops didn't show up to investigate for three weeks, right, after the initial report. Then when they did show up, they made every effort they could not to find victims. And then they eventually kicked it to the attorney general who did the same thing for two years. Did everything they could not to find victims um until mike mcquery popped up but mike McQueary only popped up because there was an anonymous tip from some political operative who once corbett was elected governor next day tip goes into the center county d.a's office about mike mcquery seeing this thing in the shower and then the investigation picks up from there because the governor wanted to get the president of Penn state removed. So he's like, I could use this to remove the Penn state president. This is great. So that's, had he not had this tiff with the president of Penn state, Jerry probably be out walking around today. Wow. Um,
0: Speaking of, speaking of Mike, Mike McQuarrie, I, this is a part that I always kind of, um, kind of confused me because it, it seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because uh, my memory's not great uh, uh, on this event. Um, it seemed like he was so sure of what he saw at, at one point, and then all of a sudden he he wasn't as sure, at, like later on down the line. Is that kind of accurate?
1: Um, well, his story changed pretty dramatically. Um, actually, I have the notes from a uh, of- the president who took over after a uh, spanner rod erickson left his notebook laying in a room and some kid picked it up we happened to be a, in some secret society and he handed me a copy of the notebook and in the notebook it says back in 2001 when the query saw this he gave a very benign description of what he saw and then 10 years later gave this more vivid description but even so in 2010 when he talked to the cops he changed the story because first he said he was on campus working late and then he went over to the last building and he saw this incident in the shower room and then for whatever reason later on he changed his story and said he was at his house and was sleeping watching rudy the notre dame movie and he like this is like 5 30 at night or something he's in bed watching this movie and then he, he gets up and goes to the locker room to put a pair of shoes back and, and uh you know and then he sees this thing but um uh, his story is you know he tells the police he doesn't know what the kid looks like he couldn't be able to identify the kid the kids between 10 and 14 well between 10 and 14 kids can and that's a t- time during a growth spurt, you know, if you're 10, you're a little kid and you're 14 and you're six foot or you're, you know, you're five, eight, you know, or, or whatever. And uh, it, it just so happened that he looked into the shower through a mirror. Okay. From his locker and Jerry and this kid happened to be standing in the only place in the entire locker room that you could be seen through that mirror. But every other kid who testified said, they're at the opposite end where you can't see yeah. no serial criminals are pattern behavior they don't change they they go to that end of the lot the shower because if somebody walks in they can't see him okay it's that simple so this one time jerry's down at the other end no don't think so okay so mike so then mike when he so when the story came out mike was kind of humiliated and embarrassed because people read it and said why didn't he go in there and stop this you know rape from occurring okay and so mike's like oh yeah you know geez when i changed my story i didn't think of that angle (laughs) coming out so then he called the attorney general's office and emailed her which we have the emails he says well i really didn't actually see that going on i just you know, think that's what was going on. So not a reliable witness whatsoever, you know. And through all the trials, nobody really did a good job impeaching his uh, his story for whatever reason. You know, they just, I know in Spaniard's trial, they had watched the civil case between McQuarrie and Penn State. The jury felt bad for Mike for whatever reason because of all the threats he got. And so they didn't cross examine them hardly at all during the Spaniard trial, which they should have totally annihilated. Him, you know, like said, here's your four different versions. Well, how could you go from being on late working late on campus to this version where you're home in bed? Then you say you drove across campus and it was deserted, but there was a rock concert going on at the basketball arena where there would be police out directing traffic to tell people which way to go. So if you didn't remember any of that, you must have been out of your mind drunk or it didn't happen the way you said it happened. So, And really cool. both out of his mind drunk, knowing Mike McQuarrie.
0: I, I, and I actually, I, I was just going to bring that up uh, just for audience or people who don't know. Uh, who was Mike McQuarrie? He was a former, he was a former player at Penn State, right?
1: like played quarterback at Penn State from 90, he was a starter in 1997. He only played one year as a starter. Um, But then he came back as a GA, graduate assistant coach. Um, And so that's what he was doing there in 2001, right there. Um, So he was quite, uh, he liked the bar scene in State College. Um, He could could tip a few drinks and, um, you know, I suspect you know the week that this happened was the end of he was re- like a really helping with recruiting when he was the ga okay so that was letter of intent week all right so what would you do at the end of letter of intent week on a friday when you don't have any classes in graduate school you'd be downtown drinking right every every grad student would all right unless you're off on spring break which mike wasn't so chances are he was drinking downtown. He walked across the street from the bar where there's a sporting goods store. Okay. Bought shoes at the sporting goods store, drove to campus drunk, put him in his locker, went into the locker room, heard some noises, you know, saw Sandusky and the kid come out of the shower and then he drove home. Okay. That's probably what happened. Wow. And,
0: was it like the next, like subsequent events that happen? He he ends up going to the head coach, Joe Paterno, correct? And right. he has a conversation with him at his house, right? And is in that conversation,
1: well, let's just start now. This is what happened next. So, Mike, mm-hmm. Mike saw something that troubled him, so he called his dad to find out what to do, okay? Then his dad. Worked at a medical practice as an administrator, and they called the one of the doctors from the practice there to see what Mike should do. So we have two people talking about what Mike should do. And neither of them say, Call the police. Now, if you think you witnessed a rape and you told two ad- grown adult men, one's in his 40s or one's in his 60s, they would obviously advise to call the police, unless Mike McQuarrie was too drunk to talk to the police. Then, Mike, go home and sleep it off. And then tomorrow, go tell Joe what you saw.
0: Wow. And in that, do we know in that conversation that he had with uh, Joe Paterno? Where, um, like, do we know exactly, like, what he described to Joe?
1: Mike admits, under. Oath that he did not give Joe any specifics about what he said. And the meeting lasted all of five minutes. Okay. Mike came in and sat at the kitchen table. Joe came in and sat down. Mike said he saw some kind of thing, you know, in there that bothered him about Jerry. Okay. And so Joe said, don't worry about it, Mike. I'll take care of it, you know. And so that was that. Really. And like I said, under oath, he said he never used any term like sodomy sex anal sex any of that kind of stuff with Joe
0: in just like speculating do you think he did that um because you know he know he knows that Jerry Sandusky has been a coach under Joe Paterno for many many years he doesn't want to um i don't he wants to kind of give him some sort of i don't want to say respect but I I don't know if that makes sense, but he just didn't want.
1: I think that Mike is telling Joe the truth because he didn't see anything. Okay. There was something going on and forcing around or noises coming out of the locker room. Like he said to the doctor, I heard what I thought were sex Mm. sounds. Turns out the kid that Jerry had a habit of slap boxing these kids when they were in the shower and rustling around them so you can grab them and then rope them and stuff so he probably just heard them slapping each other uh, and doing that kind of thing and um you know he interpreted it to be you know, sex noises okay dr dranoff one of the doctors said well mike what did you see and mike would never tell him what he saw so it was like look you know what's so hard if, if you saw something nobody saw, but, but the point is jerry was at the end of the shower where you couldn't see anything so mike heard noise saw jerry and the kid come out and that's what he mm-hmm. that's you know if i had to you know on my dying grave i would say that's exactly what happened couldn't have been anything else so mike's trying to say to joe look something happened i don't know what it was you know Joe says, okay i'll check it out i'll go tell curly you know the athletic director, what happened. So, mm. And Joe, like, he was flying out to Pittsburgh right after he got done talking to Mike. He had to go to a dinner. So again, this isn't five alarm fire, call the cops. This is something happened. We don't know what it was. Joe got back from Pittsburgh, looked up what he was supposed to do in the manual for Penn State. He says, okay, call my boss. Tell my boss what I saw, you know. And Joe was like, that's that. Let him handle it.
0: Do you think, did people use this meeting between Mike and Joe um, against Joe to say that, oh, see, like Paterno was told what was going on?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Read the grand jury presentment. Okay. It's what what I call accurate, but misleading because in one sentence it says Mike, Mike looked into the shower room and saw Jerry having sexual intercourse with a uh, young boy from 10 to 12 years old, okay? Next sentence, then he went to Joe Paterno's house and told him what he saw, okay? Which you make the inference, well, that's what he told him. But that's not really what happened, those two sentences like I say, they're both accurate, but when you put them together, that's not accurate. Each sentence on their own. So when you read it, I would, I would say to anybody, if you read a grand jury presentment or an indictment, each sentence doesn't, exact, doesn't have to connect to the next sentence, okay? Each one of those sentences is a statement of fact that may not actually be true in the context of the next sentence. I see what you're saying I've, yeah i've read numerous indictments and i go through and it's like you know okay these two sentences aren't they're true but they don't go together you know they have nothing to do with what happened or what what the allegation what the crime that you're charging with you put those two sentences together yeah you have that that's really not what isn't what happened okay
0: okay i see what you're saying yeah. um in and, and again this meeting between Mike and Joe took place in uh, 2001, you said?
1: Yeah, that Saturday after the, you know, Mike allegedly saw this on Friday night, went to Joe's Saturday. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, and then looking at Joe and, like you said, the actions that he took, he rep- he goes, he has that meeting with Mike. And then he goes to his superiors, which were, you had mentioned, um, uh, like the president of the university or? No, he
1: he just went to his supervisor, the athletic director. He actually called him on the phone and just said, hey, Tim, come on over to the house, you know, which is how Joe worked everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, it wasn't, it didn't have to be a major event to get invited to Joe's house to talk. Joe, you know, Joe didn't spend any much time in the football office, you know, like in His office, office, he had an office at home, okay. I mean, when he met with the staff, he met at you know, last building, but he had you know, projector, he had everything he needed in his home office. Um, so when they built a new stadium, of course, they built this gigantic, grandiose office for him because it's really for the next coach. But uh, Joe operated out of his house as much as he could. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a big deal We're getting called over to Joe's house, so yeah. Joe and his wife were always talking to people.
0: Okay. Yeah. He, um, like, his house was just right there on campus, right in State College.
1: Oh, yeah. It's right just off campus. Yeah. I mean, across Park Avenue, which is north of the stadium in a little neighborhood called Park Forest. And that's where Joe lived. He could walk 15 minutes to get to the stadium. Wow.
0: Yeah. That, that's cool that he was very, um, accessible to, you know, the university and students, athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, now, moving forward uh, some years to when this, this scandal, like, really breaks out, is this, right. um, this is uh, 2011 when now Jerry Sandusky gets uh, arrested? Is that right? Exactly.
1: November of 2011. November no of- was, okay. well november 9th was the night that they had the press conference and fired joe sandusky got let's see the grand jury report was released saturday november 5th The charges against jerry were leaked on the fourth on friday the fourth and so um word got out friday night but Just the charges, like just the legal dockets, criminal docket sheets, no details, not the 36 pages of, you know, describing the crimes or anything like that. That didn't come out till Saturday morning. And then on Saturday, people read it and started, you know, getting fired up about it. And by Monday, when they had the press conference, then, you know, things were in full fury. This weekend talk radio and everybody else were were all over this story about Joe not reporting this time for the police.
0: And is this right around the time uh, if my, and I don't know if you know this, my, if my memory s- serves me correctly, he, Joe had just eclipsed the like all-time winningest uh, head
1: Right, player. exactly. I think it was um, yeah, the weekend they played Illinois and uh, yeah, he went for the four hundred men to win. Then they had an offer. Right. Mm. And so all this stuff happened during the offer.
0: So I I just like going through it in my head, I can't I just don't know what that emotional roller coaster is like to go from, you know, you're the now the all time winningest, you know, head football coach uh in, in college football to I mean, it what it, it was like a week later and he they're firing him.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, Joe. Uh, you know, if you read Poznansky's book about Joe, he kind of thought this wasn't a big deal. You know, it was going to blow over. He was getting ready to prep coach the next game against Nebraska. Okay. Um, but uh, his, you know, they were saying, Joe, no, this is gonna, this is really a major thing. The media's all over it. And then, when they canceled, like his Tuesday morning press conference, where you know, he would get up there and say whatever. Okay, they basically the board of trustees took it away from Paterno. There's like I said, there was a, a power triangle at Penn State. There was President Spanier, there was the Joe Paterno, and there was the board of trustees. Now, Joe wasn't didn't have any real power, but he'd been there for 60 years. Okay, raised all this money for the university. So he's very well respected. You know, he would go in and work with the board on different projects, you know, build libraries, do whatever. Um, so the board wanted to consolidate power. So the way to do that is fire a Spaniard, fire a paternity. Okay, then take over and we'll run the university without interference from these other guys, the way we think the university should be run. So um That was part of it. The board wanted to, you know, consolidate power. There's also a personal vendetta by one of the people on the board against Joe. So then you had the governor, who's an ex-officio member of the board, who had a vendetta against Graham Span. So that's kind of what happened. All the vendettas got settled. You know, everything's fine now. You know, the politico got what they needed. Power broker got what they needed.
0: Do you think, like the fact that, you know, Joe Paterno has been coaching at Penn State at that point since like the 60s, -hmm. was there some, I don't know if uh, animosity is the right word, but were people kind of getting like in that, at that uh, level of the administration of the university and such, um, were they getting kind of tired of Paterno and they were kind of seeing this as like their way
1: out? Well, so... Here's the other thing too, I mean, so Spanier, this, that was gonna be Joe's last year, okay? Spanier had already told four, four people on the board of trustees, you know, and they had to keep it a secret that Joe was gonna retire at the end of the year because Joe didn't want a retirement tour through all the big 10 stadiums. You know, he just wanted to go quietly and leave and uh, didn't want any speculation about his successor Going on. And um, so they all knew he was leaving at the end of the year. So there was no reason to fire him like that. But they just did it out of vindictiveness. All right. So, and I think, you know, the media causing the firestorm that they did, you know, the board felt pressure to act, you know. But, uh, you know, It was kind of a. How should I say it? Um, Yeah, just basically vindictiveness more than anything. They wanted to disgrace him before he left. Okay. And
0: now, Joe Paterno, within, what is it? Within like just a few months of his firing, he actually he
1: passes away. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So he had lung cancer. And uh, I don't know when it was diagnosed, but, you know, yeah. So by January, he was, and, you know, look, really, it you was know, just, he, you know, I don't know what chemotherapy or whatever they tried, you know, he was very gaunt when he died. But, uh, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's crazy how it happened, you know. And I think him not being around to defend himself later, like the free report, if Joe's alive, I don't think the free reports, anywhere near is, is brutal. But, you know, with him dead, he can't, he can't argue. He can't have his own press conference, which is what they would have wanted to hear. You know, and Joe would have said, that report's a bunch of malarkey. You know, Joe out of the way, he had a bunch of weenies from our board coming up there and saying the report's great, thorough, comprehensive, you know, and before this is before anybody's even read it. Okay. Because if you know the story, it was supposed to come out, media was supposed to get a copy. They said there was a glitch. Uh, they couldn't post it on the web. Uh, they could post the executive summary or hand out executive summaries, which was all the all the bad stuff, but nothing to support it in the body of the report. Then they came out and tried to hand out thumb drives to the media. So it was a circus. But... Uh, yeah, when you read the report, it's like, oh, my God, is, there's just nothing there, you know? And was
0: was the free report uh, the reason why then that later on uh, the NCAA took away, like, a lot of wins from Joe Paterno?
1: Well, uh, that's kind of the—that's, yeah, that in a nutshell, that's how you could interpret it, but— um, so the story goes, the NCAA sanction st- story, it's probably not told, which probably could be a whole other book, is there were two parallel things going on, okay? You had Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, and you had Don Remy, the general counsel for the NCAA, working with president of Penn State, Rod Erickson, and his attorney, okay, His name escapes me. He was hired on. Um, But anyway, uh, they basically hammered out the whole thing. Okay. Consent decree, the punishment, blah, blah, blah. All done on this executive level. Meanwhile, the guy that Penn State hired to negotiate with the investigative staff, a guy named Gene Marsh. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Okay. But wherever Gene Marsh has been hired, like Ohio State hired him. Alabama hired him, I don't know who else hired him, but whoever they hired him, they got severely punished, okay? Because he's such a bad negotiator, okay? So he worked with the NCAA investigators and then he would come back and he would tell the board of trustees, oh, this is terrible, this is awful. Bow down, give them whatever they want. They're gonna give you the death penalty, you know? Which was all, that's a big lie. Death penalty was never on the table, really, okay? And, uh, and so, basically, you know, they hammered it out with the NCAA and, you know, top guy Emmert, our top guy, Erickson, and his attorneys, Frank Blood the det- attorneys at Penn State. But anyway, they came up with the with the consent decree and the sanctions and made sure we stayed on television, you know. But they really wanted to, uh, as an academic, you um, President Rod Erickson really wanted football to you know take a back seat to academics. I mean he had this fantasy, like, you know, we're gonna make football like just you know, like an Ivy League football thing, you know, like you know, we're gonna be like Harvard and these guys were we're known for academics and the football teams there, you know. It was like, okay, that's not realistic. You know that every major university that People want to go to. They got a good football team on TV. and They got a good basketball team on, t- on TV. You know, like you talk to somebody who goes to somewhere like East Carolina. They're like, "Oh, we wish we were like Penn State." You know, and and so that's how these universities are. You know, that's that's where the power is. But you have these Michael heads like Rod Erickson. We thought we're going to do this academically. Well, we're going to be the Harvard of uh, Pennsylvania. So, sorry, we already have Penn. Okay. That's the Ivy League school in Pennsylvania. You're not going to be Penn. Forget about it. So, okay. Yeah, so the NCAA, yeah, the whole, that was all just a big show. Another, like uh, I could say, it was a farce. Uh, and then when they, they really pushed uh, Don Remy, who was the general counsel for the NCAA, and they pushed Mark Emmert about the free report, they said, well, we never accepted it. We accepted it because Penn State accepted it. We didn't read it. We didn't analyze it. We, Penn State did that. They, they're they the ones who said it was okay. And then you talk to Penn State, and they're like, no, nah, nobody read it. you know. So like doing the executive board of the NCAA, Penn State Board of Trustees, you could probably find three people who actually read the entire report. You know? The rest of them, they're executives. They read the executive summary. And they say, oh, okay, and then well, that's what happened because the report must, he supported, you know, the rest of the report supports this, but it didn't, you know. Mm. Wow.
0: Um, now, the, those wins that the NCAA uh took away eventually they did get back, they returned them back to Joe Paterno, right? Mm. Um, they and they returned pretty much all the ones that they took away, they they gave yeah, back they, all of them,
1: they were sued. NCAA got sued by the the senator from Pennsylvania and the Treasurer of Pennsylvania. And in the negotiation of the lawsuit, they gave the wins back. But they still fined us 60 million bucks, which is another great story. Probably a lot of people don't know. That the $60 million fine to the athletic department was paid through a university loan, you know, university loan. The university's worth like 5 billion, okay? They loan the football team 60 million with interest. So, over the course of the loan, the university makes 43 million dollars of interest on the NCAA fines that they pay. How's that? sound? Nice place, huh?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Um uh, pivoting back to uh, Jerry Sandusky uh uh-huh. and when he when he was first arrested, uh what exactly what were the charges that they hit him with?
1: Well, yeah, so when he was arrested, they hit him with forty-eight to fifty charges, ranging from involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, which was for him oral sex, okay, between him him giving it and getting it. Uh couple charges of, of uh rape maybe one, one, one attempted rape uh most of the other charges were fondling and uh which is called indecent assault and then some minor charges like contributing to, to the delinquency of a minor child endangerment uh, so there's a lot of lesser charges and maybe like five to ten IDSI charges so um but anyway none of the uh of course the rape in the locker room that caused the firestorm he was found not guilty okay um so yeah that's good he also the other great thing about the attorney general is the stuff that they charged Tim and Tim Curley and Gary Schultz with those charges were eventually dismissed so the stuff that caused the firestorm never prosecuted. Okay. So um Spanier, you know, when they charged him with the same stuff, thrown out. Okay. So um so Jerry got convicted on was it 45 out of 48 counts. There's only three uh, that didn't get charged. The McQuery rate scene, because McQuery didn't see it. He even told the jury he didn't see it. Second charge was a a groping charge where a kid alleged that Jerry groped him in the shower. And for some reason, the jury didn't believe this kid. Okay. Uh, I just don't think the kid was, the kids didn't really fit the pattern of Jerry, the way Jerry did things. Because he, you know, like normally you take a kid in the shower, and that was kind of a test. He'd do that early on. This kid said, Well, it was three years before Jerry took him to the shower. Probably you know, the jury kind of said, Nah, that doesn't fit. So, um, and then the third one was another groping allegation that the victim, the witness, went on the stand and said, No, Jerry never groped me. They just, you know, the attorney general just charged on it. And even the witness said, No, it didn't happen. So,
0: now i I've seen some stuff as of like as of recently that Jerry's like kind of back in the news he's asking for like a new trial.
1: Is that right? right? Yeah, I think they actually denied that already. oh okay, but, but yeah he he was citing new evidence uh, that that these kids underwent memory therapy okay, which they didn't okay. Hate to say it, but as much as they want to say it happened, it didn't happen. Uh, one of the kids who did undergo it wasn't at a trial, so it doesn't count. Okay. He's trying to get a new trial, it has for to be something that happened to his trial. Um, what else were they trying to say it happened? Uh, most of the stuff that they brought up was already brought up in previous trials, previous appeals. So I got kicked out, pick up passed. My kind of told people. Mm-hmm. I didn't even write about it. I said, this is all, you may think it's new. But it's all been appealed before. So. Okay.
0: And um, I, I know you had mentioned uh, Graham Spanier, and I know that uh, I actually have uh, his book in the lion's den right here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just curious, ha- have you read his book?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm in it about 30 times.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Oh, wow. I, um, I picked it up. I actually. I, I haven't quite got to it yet. <laughs> um,
1: I'm referenced in there quite a bit.
0: Is um d- does do you think what do you think about Graham's book? Does it do like a good job of speaking about this like the the media firestorm like that that you? Yeah, talked I think about?
1: he does a really good job explaining. Like he's looking at it from his angle. Like he wanted to how he wanted to handle the press, and he want him. uh he didn't go into any detail about what the press lied about, okay? Um, but he does a good job of, you know, his perspective of what happened. And then he does he really goes into the criminal justice system about how that um, just was turned on his head to, to um, you know, it took him six years to get to trial. And when he got there, he gets convicted of child endangerment, Okay. There's two counts of child endangerment where the wording was exactly the same. Okay. They acquit him on one and they convict him on the other. Same kid. Okay. Right. Um, wow. then a conspiracy to commit child endangerment, which they acquitted him of that. So the jury basically they gave the, the case to the jury on a Friday. They wanted to go home for the weekend. <laughs> they had one holdout at the end decided, all right, I'll vote guilty just to get out of here, you know. And so Spanier goes to jail for three and a half months, you know, over a jury who, the guy even went to the judge and said, judge, I got to tell you, I didn't think he was guilty. I just went along with him, okay. I didn't see the crime. And the judge should have said, look, you know, the judge should have said, look, jury, you can't convict him on this one. And then quit him on the other. Either he's guilty of both, but it can't be just one. Okay, it's the same, it's the same crime. Okay. But the judge didn't do it. The judge was kind of corrupted. And then Spanier, he he had it overturned. Okay. He was overturned, he overturned the conviction. The attorney general kicked it to the Supreme Court. And one of these guys on the Supreme Court, who used to be an attorney general, who probably had something to do with Jerry walking away from his crimes in 1998 said Spanner was guilty of supervising he had to be in it, to endanger the welfare of a child, you have to supervise the child, okay or have some responsibility officially okay. And this judge wrote because Spanner sent an email to Cury and Schultz about what we're going to do about Jerry, okay? he then assumed responsibility for the child, which they didn't even know who the child was. They didn't even know it was a child, okay? They had no idea how old this kid was, okay? And even in the appeal, Spaniard's appeal said, we don't know who the kid is. The query's saying it could be 10, it could be 14, okay? If he's over 14, this certain crime doesn't apply, all right? So, uh, but the judge wouldn't let that that part of the appeal go forward. So, um, yeah, just yeah, it's just very uh, very corrupt. Uh, and you know, it was a sideshow. It was like put all this stuff on Penn State. Meanwhile, don't do anything to the second mom. And that's really where my book really is focusing on how badly they avoided going to the second mom. You know. Like, if you're searching for victims in a police investigation, the first kid says, I met Jerry through the second mile. Second person they interview is the kid's coach. And while they interview the mom, she says, yeah, I met him through the second mile. They interview the football coach. He says, yeah, Jerry's got four kids here that he mentors through this charity called the second mile. Okay. And then the, the, another guy that they run into who sees Jerry in, in the wrestling room with the kid says, well, I know Jerry does all this work for the community for the second mile. So you got six, seven people all telling the cops. There's this place called Second Mile that Jerry runs for young boys. And, um, you know, that's where he's meeting these kids, befriending them. So you would think, boy, police maybe ought to go down there, second mile, find out if there's any more kids who have a story like this. Never did it. Never went, not until 2011, two years before they went to talk to anybody from the second moment. And, um, what, I
0: mean, what could be the, what could be the reason for that? And, and I know if you don't want to give too much away from your book, totally understand. Um, but, you
1: you know, usually they say follow the money in these cases, um, which is, in this case, is partially true. Um, I have an MBA. My friends that are PhD accounting professors, we went through the books The Second Mile. Lots of money missing. Between 10 and $25 million. Okay, missing over the period from 98 to 2010. Right. Um, so we have missing money, but we have very wealthy people. Who are on the board of the, of the second mile? They don't need money, okay? So then, if they're not embezzling the money, and the people at the second mile don't get paid anything. Where do you think the money going?
0: Um, like maybe even high, like higher than that. Um, uh, like how
1: about how about the silence victims?
0: Okay. Huh. Wow. Whew. I yeah, I didn't think about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, neither did uh, anybody else. Yeah. But, um, so we're looking at their books. Um, at one point, the second mile used to disclose in their financial statements the children who they gave grants to grant money like five thousand. 2,000, 1,000, okay, after 2002, they stopped doing that, okay, and uh, then you have a situation where you have kids saying, well, this person from second mile gave me a car, okay, or gave me money to buy a car, or gave me a pickup truck, okay, and then the second mile would hold uh, what was called a reverse auction, okay. So at the end of the night, a needy second mile family would be awarded a house. Okay. Second mile board was full of real estate developers, builders, contractors. Okay. People in construction. All of a sudden they're giving away houses, giving away cars. Okay. So well, wow. now. You you know you pick up the newspaper today you read about Jeffrey Epstein right everybody his client list is sealed Judge seals Epstein client list why because there's a lot of powerful people involved right with Je- with Jeffrey Epstein and um, they don't want to get him out well you know Jeffrey Epstein is kind of like I think a microcosm of you know, the bigger picture so basically you have a lot of powerful people in the world. Okay, they like to have sex with younger, you know, Epstein's girls for 15, 16, 13, whatever. Same with the girls at second mile, 15, 16, 13. Okay, there's probably powerful people who want to have sex with young kids like that. Okay, judges, prosecutors. You know, whoever, wow. senators, politicians.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when the Second Mile uh, got in trouble and Jerry got in trouble in 2011, one of the senators, Senator Jake Foreman, who was on the board of the Second Mile, said they were going to try to preserve the charity after Jerry, keep it going. Okay. Right. Well, you know you talk to the people who actually specialize in uh, children's programs, like they ran at the Second Mile for at-risk youths, they said, yeah, Second Mile's programs were high cost, low value, okay? Meaning they didn't do much for the kids. And then one of the programs that they had, which is, to anybody who understands, uh, you know, like how you're supposed to, deal with children all right you know you know, boy scouts youth organizations we well, you always have the can't have one-on-one contact between adults and a kid unsupervised you always had to have like in the boy scouts you had have have two leaders there to talk to one boy because if you made an accusation you have to be able to defend yourself the second mile they had programs mentorship one-on-one mentorship between adults and children take them to a lock to a workout room and work out with them okay i mean they broke all the rules on how to you know and it's because jerry was in charge of it. so and then the people on the board you know maybe one or two had some kind of background in youth services for the most part all they were were fundraisers mm-hmm. and money and uh, so that's the you know if i had to put my finger on why the second mile was avoided, that's one okay because wow. You know, somebody might screw up, okay? The word might get out what was going to happen. Wow. Uh,
0: Ray, thank you very much uh, for coming on mm-hmm. and talking about this. Um, we're just right over an hour, um, and I want to be respectful of your time, so I, I really appreciate it. Um, really quick before we leave, um, I know we were mentioning uh, about your book. Uh, when does your book come
1: out, and uh, what's the title? Well, I I haven't decided on what a title title will be. It's kind of like going to be like the untold story of the Jerry Sandusky investigation or something like that. Okay. Um, I plan to have the manuscript done probably around Memorial Day. And then, uh, you know, we'll go to publishers. You know, I'll have some editors and people like that look at it. And then, uh, you know see how, see how what the timeline is, if they want to publish it, and, uh, who's going to do it. But, uh, you know, Spanier, Graham Spanier and I became pretty, you know, well acquainted during this time. When I was at his book signing, he said, when's your book coming out? And I said, yeah, I guess I should write one. So, um, as I have time, I work on it, but I put the deadline for Memorial Day to get the manuscript done. So, uh. And like I said, I have, you know, these volumes behind me, seven hundred blog posts, numerous other reports I've written. So it's more or less compile this stuff together into, you know, into a book. Uh, add some details I didn't have. Do a couple more interviews, and then, yeah, then see what happens.
0: Nice. I'm um yeah, like I, I I know I had messaged you before and said I I definitely. Um, I definitely will be purchasing the book. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, f- for people who want to connect with you, uh, I know you're on Twitter. Um, are you anywhere else that people can kind of get in touch with you?
1: Uh, no, nah, probably Twitter is the best. I'm not real big on social media these days. But, mm-hmm. um, at Ray Bleehart. That's where I'm at. Um, and uh, yeah, I used to be pretty active blogging, but. Um, With the information that's slowed down, really not a lot of new stuff coming out.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I don't do much on the blog anymore. I guess Um, if something would happen, I might get back active blogging again. Maybe the time around the time the book comes out. Um, Anyway, that's kind of what's going on. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, you want to have me back to discuss some other aspect of the case. you know, most people only know that 2001 is, you know, the, the most famous one, but I mean there's, you know, the janitor incident is even more crazy, you know, you know, in terms of not having any real evidence that that actually occurred. I mean, in my opinion, that's made from whole cloth, you know, that never happened. They just fabricated that in the attorney general's office one afternoon. So, you know, and the great, one of the last things I will do is, is wrote this presentment that was caused this firestorm. And when they After they got done writing it, they realized, oh my God, we put all this onus on Penn State, but we don't have any crimes. We only have one crime happening after 2001. Okay. I, you know, so like if these guys are responsible for all these kids being abused, where are all the victims? There aren't any. Like we had this kid in the shower, then nobody for five years. How mm-hmm. can that be, you know? Well, yeah. Oh, wow. You know, Jerry took a sabbatical from being a pedophile from 2001 to 2005.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. Again, I, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. And definitely, I would love to have you back on to um discuss more about this case and hopefully next time have you on when you when your book yeah. is published
1: well let me know when the podcast is out or how this works i'll put it out on my twitter Maybe this on my followers put it on facebook absolutely me, yeah, give you some promotion
0: awesome I appreciate that and i'll include uh, a links to um your t- i'll include your twitter uh your link to the to the blog as well in the episode description for people to check it out
1: um, yeah, that works. it's um, not psu.blogspot.com.
0: Oh, awesome. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, everybody uh, check it out. Um, Thank you very much, Ray, again. And thank you, everybody out there for listening. Uh, My name is Chris. This has been Cheatash. Take care, everybody.